This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back. This is the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. This is episode 50, so the big 5-0 today, closing in on our... Uh, on our 52, we've completed about full year's worth. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to talk about a pretty dramatic uh, lightning strike that hit a cockpit during a storm over uh, South America recently. We will talk about some good Boeing news. Uh, 770 or 787 Dreamliners are back being delivered. Uh, Southwest has placed a really big 737 Max order. We'll also talk about Rolls Royce's new gigantic, potentially world's largest uh, turbofan. We're also going to talk about two really unique in our uh, designs in our EVTOL segment. One with the talent, it's called the Talon system, and it's actually a sort of a lifting, like it's a, basically a two part where one um, vehicle is going to lift it, then separate as the aircraft takes off. So pretty complex. I'm sure Alan will have some intense thoughts about it. And then we're going to talk about some new Lilium news. Uh, them releasing a seven-seat EVTOL and also confirming their merger with Quell. So, Alan, how are you, sir? Good, Dan. Boy, it's been a crazy week in aviation. A lot of things are starting to pick up, but hopefully uh, we're going to start seeing the world economy start to turn around as everybody gets vaccinated and the, and the airline industry can pick up. But it, there are some positive signs happening, which are always good. Yeah. Well, I was on a plane a bunch this, this past uh, week and a half, and... All most of the flights are, I mean, pretty darn full. Of course, I'm sure they're condensing their schedule, right, to sure. make that happen, so it's yeah. more financially viable. Yeah. But they're definitely not doing the, you know, every other seat. Which I know you've taken a lot of flights in the last uh, six months, and I took one, I think, back in October, November, and that was, I think, still kind of sparse, where they had a lot of middle seats open. But it seems like it's definitely shifting in the right direction, you know, financially. It is, and I uh, the last piece of legislation that was signed by Congress uh, or signed by the White House is pumping money into the aviation community, especially the airline community. So you're seeing a lot of recalls. People that have been laid off or being brought back to work, which is fantastic. And uh, that'll tend to spur further developments and you know get the airline industry moving again as people get back to work and there's some cash influx into their hopefully by the summer, when I say summer, I mean like July, August, things are clicking along at least to 50% of where they were be. That would be good. And then, you know, it just grows from there, but we need to get going. So first on our, our, our list today, a Boeing 737 was struck flying over Panama. And it's pretty crazy. You can see this little like two minute video where, you know, the, the sky just lights up and you can see the bolt sort of hit the cockpit. Um, Alan, is there a big difference between where lightning strikes on the aircraft? I mean, as far as, at least from where a passenger is concerned, like, do they care if it hits the wing or the cockpit or the fuselage? Uh, most passengers don't notice when the aircraft has been struck by lightning. And that's just because it, when you're in the airplane, it doesn't tend to be as loud or noticeable. I mean, you hear a pop, but it's not like you would think because you're so close to it. When you hear a lightning strike on the ground, it's extremely noisy and extremely bright bright in, a, in an airplane it doesn't tend to be that way the pilots are the one who 
typically notice them, particularly in this particular case, because the lightning strike happened off the, the nose and came right over the, the cockpit. So the, the pilots can get blinded by that temporarily because uh, it's such a large flash. But that's the more common case. You don't see a lot of video that show that um, attachment to the nose of the aircraft and it's sweeping back over the airplane. That's a very common type of lightning strike and leads to a lot of um, repair that has to happen. When you take a strike to the nose of the airplane, the airplane actually is flying through the lightning. So that lightning reattaches itself to the fuselage and into the tail if it lasts that long. So you get these little pop marks that happen all along the fuselage that somebody needs to look at and inspect and repair or, or buff out or whatever they're gonna do. A strike to a wingtip, if you happen to be sitting on a window seat and you, you could see it, that's pretty easy to see. Uh, you see a lot of videos about, like that more recently because people have cameras on the phones. But the strike to the wingtip is pretty easy to fix because pretty much just the wingtips when the tail's getting struck. So you just got a localized area you got to go fix on the airplane versus these 50 little pot marks you're going to have mm -hmm. on the fuselage. Yeah, that's the difference. Cost. Well, I know all those things are obviously really scary for a passenger where if you see the plane get hit, you're going to be like, do I need to tell somebody? You know, like a, it's like the old Twilight Zone episode where there's the gremlin on the. Does everyone know? Can you but, see this gremlin yeah, right. out in the wing? Can you see it? Yeah. <laughs> that episode is still amazing. Timeless. Timeless. So moving on, 787s, the Dreamliner, um, Boeing's, you know, big boy, is being delivered again. It says Boeing still has 80 in stock or so with 457 Dreamliners to deliver out of the 1500 order. This is uh, reporting from aerotime.aero. So obviously all their production is done in uh, Charleston, South Carolina now. And this is good news for the company because they've had some production quality issues um, and that were getting to be a big concern. Right, it caused a lot of chaos within Boeing to, to get the, the quality issues resolved. And uh, and then it, pretty much everything stopped. It's going to be a combination of there wasn't a huge demand for the aircraft. It tends to do longer routes. And when there are not a lot of longer routes being flown right now, and they had these quality issues, so it made sense to kind of shut it down and reboot it in a more consistent fashion. They, but they got to get going, right? I mean, you, you can't do that forever. Mm -hmm. You got to sell aircraft. And the 77 is a very good aircraft. It does have this sort of niche place where it does very efficient routes. So they, in terms of the South Carolina facility, they needed it to get going. So five aircraft, hopefully will turn into 50, right? That it'll gradually grow over time again. But it's good to see that because that was the one airplane that you were worried about was not gonna make it out of this uh, coronavirus situation. That was the one. Yeah, just because all the big planes, and we're going to talk about this later with the new turbofan coming out of uh, Rolls-Royce, but there's just n not a place for international flights kind of at the moment. No, until we can all agree upon who can travel, right? There seems to be this push to have some sort of vaccination card before you can travel internationally, but there are no systems in place to do it. So at the earliest you're going to see that, I think, is the summertime at the earliest, uh, so those yeah. international routes are still going to be really slow. So other good news for Boeing and, of course, Southwest is that Southwest has placed an order for 100 new 737 Maxes, and they have an option for 155 more. Um, and we were chatting about this off, off, uh, offline here, but, you know, Boeing flies only 737s. 
what's the advantage of that and why so my other question to you, i have two questions number one, why be so bought into one aircraft because if they had a defect wouldn't you be kind of eh, like stuck with it number two uh is there really a difference between like an air like i i flew home on a uh american airlines a320 airbus a321 neo is there really a significant difference between an airbus in 2021 or a new boeing plane i mean they both i'm sure have the best engineering in the world this is kind of like to me ferrari versus porsche or lamborghini like it's a really significant difference there's not a real significant difference if you're a passenger on the airplanes they basically fly you just as comfortably um range is comparable or, or un, un, uncomfortably well yeah right so that, i mean obviously the relatively seven, speak well the 737 is just an older airplane right so you you you're kind of stuck with that tube size and airbus airplanes are in very well put together airplanes i mean they obviously they got a lot of bright intelligent people putting those airplanes together same thing for boeing right so they they've they kind of honed their marketplace and they all have their little um niche in the world where they are very successful the the difference between the airplanes uh, from a operational side from a uh, uh, airline side really comes down to the accounting office all the little details of how much it costs to buy replacement parts and how often do you need it to to fix the aircraft to uh, things like pilot training and all the little nuanced stuff that we as passengers never think about drive uh, the success or downfall of airlines they just, just does right and having two different aircraft makes makes her have different two sets of pilots and two sets of mechanics so to speak and you have to be much more versatile if you're a mechanic you're gonna be working on different airplanes all the time so having one airplane simplifies things in, in theory in theory makes it quote unquote safer because everybody is just working on this one thing but uh you, you see I, I, the thing i see the most about the boeing airbus is sort of a political aspect to it which is <laughs> both companies are funded by their governments substantially even though they say that they're not they are they are on some level and in the united states Boeing's getting the big push from the federal government in europe airbus getting the big push from the european governments that's what drives it and then you know china is a wild card japan australia you know th those those tend to be more um, divided um, Brazil, you know, it's Embraer. So the, the, you, you kind of get this div political divide that's starting to drive where airplanes are sold. Uh, if you're a smart airline company, you don't really care what air airplane you operate, they'll leverage them. Like United and Delta will leverage the two Boeing and Airbus against one another to drive down the cost, the, the purchase price, and maybe the, the maintenance prices of the airplanes, they'll, they'll do that. But Southwest has taken a different approach. And so like Ryanair has done that differently. There's a couple airlines which are only one airplane type airlines, which have done fairly well. So I mean, the, the model appears to work. Uh, the, the question is, like, Southwest doesn't fly transatlantic, right? And it doesn't have any attention to. If you're united, you kind of have to do that. Yeah, and one of the, I think, famous stories about Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest Airlines, you know, I, I think someone came into his office and like, hey, we have this, you know, we, we should offer this type of meal service or like this new thing. And, and he had basically one question. He's like, well, will offering this help us be the number one low cost airline in the world? And if the answer was no, then we, we're not doing it. So that everything they're doing in Southwest has always been to be the number one low cost airline. So 
it seems when you start to view all their decisions in that that vein then um it probably makes sense that hey we want to have a huge stock of parts that fit every one of our planes we can always interchange it the, like you said the mechanics they're incredibly competent on this aircraft there's no mix-ups it's not you know right how does this latch work on this plane how does this baggage door close on this plane i mean it's just not that those are you know important questions right. but everything is stable they can just drop in you know interchange people because they all know the same plane they can move people around and exactly you know like you said pilot training simpler and on all that stuff so and like you said buying in bulk being a big customer of boeing is probably going to afford them some luxuries also as far as like feedback on planes or right griping about certain features that aren't working well a good example of this and a more recent example of sort of the decision process that happens when bombardier built the c-series which eventually became the airbus a220 you know bombardier has built sort of regional aircraft for a long time and and if the companies that operate those know how to operate them and know the foibles and the benefits of operating those things when they built the a220 or the c-series it's something completely clean sheet new. You don't know what you don't know because you don't have any service history. So from an airline's perspective, you're sort of taking this risk of, is it going to last as long as they say it is? It's got these geared turbofan engines, which, engines, which I don't know much about. Uh, do I have the mechanics and the infrastructure in place to handle them? And do are they going to create additional problems? Don't know. Uh, and I think that really kind of hurt Bombardier in a sense that they they didn't have that sort of Airbus or Boeing placement of yeah but we'll take care of it right uh, Bombardier may, may not have had that financial infrastructure if there was a problem with the airplane to help a Delta operate it so when uh, Airbus was purchased given the, that program you know, all of a sudden you have all this infrastructure that's placed over that A220 design and it's a great airplane don't get me wrong it's a great airplane but having Airbus name on the front of it made it a better airplane. All right, moving on to our, our engineering segment for today, we're going to talk about uh, the new Rolls-Royce Ultrafan, which uh, will be the world's biggest airplane engine, fan diameter of 140 inches, and seems to be fundamentally different in just like some little respects than the GE uh, 9X, which is the current, you know, largest uh uh, jet engine in the world. So, Alan, what what jumps out to you on this? And also, my other question here for you is, who does this plane fit? Because we've talked about, large, you know, the Airbus A380 has been, um, you know, decommissioned, or not decommissioned, that might not be the right word, but, you know, they've been taken out of service. Yeah, and mostly, yeah. Uh, so, this is not going to fit a 737, right? This no. is a big, big, <laughs> big jet engine. Right. So, but with the international flights kind of being on hiatus, Where's the Ultrafan going to go? Don't know. I honestly have seen zero press about where the end user is. And is it just a technology demonstrator that they're going to scale up or down, as the case is, uh, depending what the airplane market demand is and where the next airplanes are going? Uh, the the push is for larger inlets, uh, slower-moving inlet blades, hotter hot section so there's a cold section and a hot section so the the the, the front of the engine you see when you're getting an airplane is is a big huge fan that's that is the cold section the the part that's burning the aviation fuel uh is the hot section that's where you see the, the exhaust come out the back end of the engine so you got this kind of hot cold section so the, the the most efficient design is to have these big massive fan blades 
moving at slower speeds, cutting larger uh, swaths of air and pushing them towards the back of the airplane. So as these engines get bigger and more efficient, you're gonna see more colder sections, cool air sections of the engine moving with these really funky shaped blades and then a hotter core that's burning fuel much more efficiently. So this Rolls-Royce design is, is like walking through that design and trying to come up with a baseline where they can, looks like scale it. But where's it gonna go? And I like, it's just like the worst possible time to be developing a huge engine like that when there's no international travel. What's next? I, you know, not even like the 777X is like on hold and 380 doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And where is this engine gonna go? I don't know. Cause it's such a massive amount of cash that's being burnt yeah. to, to set this up and run it. And to use that as a quote unquote demonstrator with no home for it. Whew. Wow. Yeah. Well, and again, uh, reporting here by Aerotime uh, Hub uh, online, but Simon Burr, the chief of engineering and technology at Rolls-Royce, said that basically because of the pandemic, they're pushing their um, service date for this from 2025 to potentially 2030. So this mm -hmm. is a long way off. I mean, they're, yeah. they're saying this will be ready in you know, 10 years. And if there's a, a new plane or new demand, then they could potentially launch it faster. So... Yeah, it seems like they're aware of that, and it's uh, just an interesting time to be in the engineering world. I expect, especially as these things are trying to just get bigger and bigger, and you know, we talk about this in our wind turbine podcast that you know, wind turbines are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but the pandemic has no effect on them, so it's not like suddenly they have these huge ones that need to go into storage or just need to be slowed down. Where um, the aircraft industry is just very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it totally is. To put it lightly, yeah. So moving on to our EVTOL segment today, the first one I want to uh, chat with you, Alan, about is the uh, the Talon system. And this this is what's striking to me is that even now with so many companies like put their hats in the ring here, uh, there's still new crazy designs coming out. There's like you think they'd start to sort of hone in and. Um, you know, I know that the, the helicopter is a pretty consistent design, right? There's not like crazy new wacky helicopter designs. Um, you know, we talked about earlier in the year, this, uh, one that's, you know, that has a record breaking speed, like they're doing new things to make them more efficient right. and more powerful, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But they still look like helicopters. Yeah. Um, EVTOLs continue to come out with crazy new designs. So this one, um, by the, the Talon system, uh, by Talon Air is basically has a lifting drone that will bring the aircraft up and then it'll get up to speed, I guess, is with its, uh, you know, propulsion system right. and then take off. And that and that lifting system will then return essentially as a drone will return to its base to be charged for another <laughs> lift or landing. Right. Um, I mean, how does that strike you? We've talked over and over and over. You're the certification guy that you're like that's hard to you should have a talk show it's like that's hard to certify the whole audience yells it right <laughs> yeah it's because that's what it is it's really hard to certify something that it's the two pieces that comes apart that are flying in in tandem which it just seems like there's so many downside risks to that that the, the faa and EASA would have a hard time 
creating even a certification basis for it. I, I don't know how they would even flight test it. Like, what do you do in flight test? What what sort of conditions do you put it under? Uh, from a drone standpoint, when it's uh, uh, no people unoccupied aircraft, okay, cool. I mean, I, I get it. It makes a lot more sense because it's much more efficient than carrying around these booms, which are only used for vertical takeoff and vertical landing and then carry batteries in them. Because once you get to go into forward flight, you really don't need them anymore. So you want to dump them because of the aerodynamic drag and the weight cost. So it, that doesn't, it, it, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense, but it just doesn't pass the muster of how of a certification approach. How, how are you going to certify it? Because I, I think in a lot of cases, and I think where you're getting to the heart of, Dan, is that you see a lot of different eVTOL designs that, seem certifiable like they they can in, in a sense could do it but they vary so much you got to wonder like one of these designs is not going to make it or most of these designs are not going to make it because aerodynamics of aircraft are pretty well figured out by now uh, propulsion systems are kind of figured out by now so what feature or what advantage are you providing that that we haven't known for 50 100 years now that's that's a really good question because i the, those companies haven't, a lot of those companies haven't answered that question. Like, what is it that makes you worth $6 billion? I don't know. Well, this one's interesting because it solves, uh, it purports to solve a lot of the problems that you've discussed, which is you burn up a lot of your battery energy lifting the darn thing off the ground. Like, yeah. that's really energy intensive. Yeah. And so this one says, hey, we were two piece, so you know this one has its own energy system. This one has its own, so it's going to come up, let it go. It takes care of the, you know, extremely energy intensive section of right. lifting it up, right? And then it'll just go back down and charge and wait for the next flight. That seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, obviously. And then you're reducing weight because that's not going to stay with the actual passenger craft as it takes off, right? So there's a lot of, and then you're not going to have to buy. You know, if you were to buy a fleet of 100 of these, you don't have to buy 100 with all the vertical takeoff and landing, um, you know, propulsion system. It's only going to be on like a couple of the lifters, right? Right. So right. those seem like the big pros in this pro column. But right. I mean, what are the what are the main cons here? Well, it's, think of it this way, Dan. Think of it like the, the Falcon 9 spaceship where right? there's there's uh, parts that return and parts that continue on, right? It, it's set up, the, the thought process is very similar to that, like in a rocket where at some point, this is just dead weight. We need to get rid of it. And they drop it off. So that part from an engineering standpoint makes sense. The, the wild card is, is that we're not test pilots for flying in these things. That's where the difference comes is that uh, passengers are not test pilots. Uh, people that fly to the space station, astronauts, are test pilots. <laughs> they, know, they know what they signed up for. And I, I, when you get to... All the little uh, variances that come in these designs, you're just like, man, I, I it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like the, the there's a way to keep everybody to keep the passengers safe because from from a just a business standpoint, that first crash is going to kill you. It, it will crush a company, and uh, that's why a lot of these designs are going to hone in on eventually wing designs that are very inefficient because the vertical takeoff and landing piece is so energy costly. Like you were saying, it is such an energy uh, user, massive energy user that you don't want to, you don't want to be there in any length of time. And, and maybe the short takeoff and short landing is the way to go for the time being. That may end up being what the answer is. 
We don't know because I, I and Dan, I think you pointed out this a number of times. Like we just don't know. We haven't seen anybody really take off one of these things or land one of these things or fly mm-hmm. thirty minutes in them. So we don't. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to our last topic for today, which is Lilium. So they have uh, merged with Quell, which Quell is just a SPAC. So it's not like some other, you know, um, that it, well, it just bears explaining that because SPACs yeah. are like this new thing. They're not, they're not new. They've been long, around for a long time, yeah. but they're just sort of very in the public eye all, all, you know, at this moment, people are trying to understand what they are, what they do. Um, basically Quell was the SPAC the special acquisition company or special purpose acquisition and company, right. um, led by this one in particular, led by former GM, uh, president Barry Ingle. And so they've merged with Lilium, which will allow Lilium to become a public company. Um, and so Lilium has announced a new seven seat version of its Lilium jet. Um, and again, this goes back to the same thing at a time when no one's proven that a like two person one can sustain flight for as long as it needs to ensure right. the range. So, I mean, yeah. how do you feel about them suddenly rolling out an even heavier, bigger version of the CVTOL? Well, it makes you wonder if the Uber vision of carrying people from uh, the local pizza parlor to their house or place of business is not a workable model and everybody's starting to realize that or maybe there's somebody in that space like a joby that's in that space that you're really not going to compete with so you need to be thinking more business aircraft uh type air uh, service where you're maybe going several hundred miles and you, you have four or five people on the airplane and you just need that that kind of commuter bus type aircraft that's where some of these companies are going, right? And they're going to that that sort of n- that nine to nineteen passenger uh, regional aircraft market as a, an, another potential uh, place because we know for one that business jets and business aircraft are, are a viable market because they've been around forever, and we know the, the the operators in that space is you know the King Airs and the the Cessnas and uh, the Embraers that operate in, and the Lear jets that operate in that space. That market is known. You know how many operators there are. You know how many aircraft there are. You know what they're paying for those aircraft. You know you may be able to to grab some part of that marketplace because you have a more e- efficient, uh, greener technology. On the commuter side, you know what those aircraft are right now, right? I mean, it's a CRJ type aircraft that are in those marketplaces, uh, or the the turboprops, uh, the Bombardier turboprops, Dash eights, that kind of thing. They're in that marketplace that you could. Basically, you adapt an existing airframe, make it electric, and serve that market. And in, in a lot of places in Europe, you could really do that because the distances aren't all that far. So there's a you're seeing this sort of segregation happen in terms of where these companies are focused at and where their potential marketplaces are and where they think they're going to be able to make uh, revenue from. It's really hard in all those spaces to make any money. It really is because there's so few aircraft companies that actually are profitable. So making the SPAC, and you know more about that space than I do on the investment side. Uh, the, the SPAC, the SPAC to me is just like a, a vehicle to to pour money into to, to fund the thing. But the risk doesn't go away, right? That that, that risk because you have a SPAC and you're opening up to a, a broad set of investors, indivi- individual investors, uh, will allow you maybe to, to generate more cash to do the design and get it implemented but that downside risk is still there and it's such a huge downside risk i you know it's going to be easier for an airbus or embraer or a boeing or 
one of the existing aircraft companies to enter that space than it will be to start off and to design a new airplane that flies five, seven, nine, 19 people. It's just so difficult, so difficult to, to make that profitable as we see, right? And we just don't see a lot of companies entering that space in the, in the fuel burning dinosaur fuel space. You don't see a lot of new entries there. You don't. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. So basically you're saying that they want to stay small enough where they're not going to encroach on that bigger aircraft space because like you said airbus could easily throw the money at this oh yeah or boeing could easily throw the money if they're going to get into that hey we're carrying significant passengers now right and they've got the resources to do it yeah yeah that makes sense yeah and it's in that commuter market where you know mitsubishi struggled and bombardier struggled in that marketplace that maybe there's a, a niche in there you could squeeze into right now that's where a lot of this is headed it looks like yeah, well, so this was really good reporting by EVTOL.com, which they do a great job. So if you're interested in this space, always be sure to check out their website. Yeah. Um, they, they just do a fantastic job with the EVTOL uh, news. But, you know, they're talking about the batteries and they say they've got batteries that are they're, they're testing that are higher uh, watt hour and, you know, beyond the 250. That's kind of standard. Now they're trying to get to the 300 uh, 320 watt hour per kilogram yeah. batteries. And, you know, and these are going to have, you know, 2000 pounds of batteries in one of these planes, it sounds like. Yes. So, um, I mean, it's interesting as you see here, the energy density start to go up. Obviously, I know you're a big fan of the hydro hybrid propulsion systems where you've got, like we talked about the Honeywell, um, their new turbo, um, you know, backup turbo system, powered. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Fuel powered mm -hmm. so, backup system. Yeah. And that still seems like if you're going to start to put more passengers into that, that seems to be even more so like potentially the right choice for something like that, where, all right, we've got seven instead of two passengers or seven instead of four. If the hybrid propulsion system worked for four, why wouldn't it be still be the right choice for seven? That's sort of the question I'm asking myself as right. I just read this from an outsider's perspective, right? Right. It, it, that's a good perspective to have. I think the, the issue on any uh, Honeywell it does, uh, or similar company, it doesn't matter who, is that uh, I think the thought process right now is if I can buy a set of batteries and I can buy a set of motors, I can make the propulsion system myself. I don't need a Honeywell, right? Uh, Honeywell is very knowledgeable and GE and, and Rolls-Royce are very knowledgeable in burning fuel efficiently to create electricity. And that's what an APU does. So they they know how to do those things. Uh, the If you're trying to drive the cost out of a program, they tend, if you're, if you're sort of new to this, you don't want to try to bring in uh, a Honeywell because it's going to cost you money. So you think, well, I can do that myself. This is the one piece of the aircraft I can do myself and save myself some money. The problem is it's the one piece of the aircraft where you're likely to fail too, right? So is it a, a better situation to bring in someone like a Honeywell who, who has a lot of knowledge in that space? And it may cost you a pretty penny to put that system in, but it's going to deliver the aircraft. Those are the those are trade-offs you have to make. And that's where the, the battles really lie is like, what is the cost of that system versus uh, the chance to get in the marketplace? That's where the decisions are really becoming real. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection.
Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.